So we've been talking about spiritual warfare. And as we've been talking about spiritual warfare, uh, I, today I want to just deal with three questions and let you write the points. What does the word want to say to you? What does the word want to prompt you as we walk through it all? And so before we do that, can we just ready our hearts for the word? Father, in the name of Jesus, I come to you. So thankful, Father, for your word and so thankful for your love. God, you know that your word speaks to the things, God, that sometimes we don't even know exist in our life. And so, Lord, as I, as I speak your word, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would search the hearts of men and women today. And that you would begin to convey a confidence and a strength. And if you find some things that need to be corrected, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use your scalpel to pull out whatever cancerous thing might be. But also, Lord, I pray that you would let us leave today encouraged by the sword you have placed in our hand, knowing, God, that we can walk into any and every battle and walk out victorious. We pray, God, let your word change us, challenge us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start this, this series of each uh, weapon. I will not start with the weapon today. There's a few things I need for us to understand as we get in. But before we um, uh, read, let me just run three questions by you. I want to help frame this today. I am aware it's 1114. Uh, I will not talk fast. You guys don't like that. Uh, but we will get down to the meat of the matter today. And everybody said amen. amen. Or if you'd like for me to speed read, we could do that as well. But that's not my greatest attribute. So the first question is this, is why is the topic of spiritual warfare important, Pastor Scott? Why is it important to Paul? And, why, and what is its implications for us? Why does it matter? What are we fighting? Why are we fighting? But what are we fighting? What is our response and how do we exercise the victory of the cross that we stated last week? Sometimes you think, why in the world are we fighting if there is victory, then why am I fighting for that victory? Isn't it already done? I don't understand the struggle. And so today we're going to deal with that. So first off, let's begin with why should I concern myself with spiritual warfare? I want you to first understand that Paul is writing the church of Ephesus. This is the church that, um, that he, he built uh, about three years in. There it is. Um, that, is that there? Yeah, there it is. Okay. This, is the, this was, for many centuries, the largest church ever built. Most uh, scholars think that it was at least somewhere to 50,000 to 100,000 members strong in the church of Ephesus. The reason why they say that is because there are several writings that talk about how half the city of Ephesus was, was going to church. And Ephesus was a town of no less than 200,000 people, all the way up to 500,000 people. That's a lot of people going to church, amen? And it doesn't look like that big of a church, so I don't know how many church services they were having, but, but um, I guarantee you uh, it was a humongous thing. They also lived in a city where the seventh largest wonder of the world was there. That was the Temple of Artemis, and that temple was a humongous pagan temple that uh, throughout the week, they said, was around 200,000 members came through there uh, every week. And so what we see is that this, this church belongs in a very 
pagan charged society. Uh, and so when, when Paul begins to write and deal with the book of Ephesians, there are so many things in the book of Ephesians that he talks about. He talks about hope. And he talks about unity. These are two major themes in the book of Ephesians. One of the major things is, is the purpose of the church. We talked about that in the marriage series a little bit, about how, the marriage, how marriage is supposed to reflect the church. And so all throughout Ephesians, we see massive things. And so as Paul is speaking to uh, the church about warfare, I want you to understand is that he also has this big contrast he is creating because all the way through chapters one two three and four and five he's talking about major major doctrinal items but when he gets to ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 here's what he says finally be strong the lord in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The word I want to bring your attention to this morning is the word he begins. It's finally or tulipos. Finally, this word is a very unique word, and when you see it in anywhere in Greek literature, it is a stop and recognize something. Because writers, when you saw that, writers are always, most always saying this, even though I said everything I just said, if you don't remember anything else, this matters. So, so, so you didn't follow along when I was talking about everything else. But when I came here to Lipos, that means stop and pay attention about the next thing I'm about to tell you. And so Paul is very serious. He's, he's walked through all kinds of analogies and understandings. But at this word, he's basically saying, I've saved the best for last. If you remember nothing else, remember this. And so Paul basically in conclusion is saying, I've saved the most important issue of this epistle until the end. Which is very um, unique. Because let me just tell you some things that Paul was teaching on. He was teaching on, in chapter 1, he was talking about election and predestination and the spirit of adoption and the seal of the spirit. Those are no small things. But he just moves right along past those things. We have people still writing volumes on the spirit of predestination. 1,500 years of argumenting, and, and, then, and, the, and the body of Christ is still divided over the idea of predestination and election and Paul just whoop just goes right past it like it's no big thing chapter 2 he talks about the grace of God versus man's works he talks about the redemptive work of the cross he talks about the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the New Testament church 3 4 and 5 he talks about the mystery of Christ revealed these are major things the ministry gifts of the apostles the prophets the evangelists the pastors the teachers, and then he talks about the renewing of the mind and putting on the new mind and being filled continually with the Spirit. These are huge things, along with husbands and wives and children and, uh, and masters and slaves. These are massive things that Paul is just saying, and if you don't remember none of that stuff, <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? I mean, those are humongous things. 
if you want to rattle your brain in theology, study Ephesians. It'll mess you up good and deep. Paul gets to the place that says, finally, let me tell you what I really want to talk to you about. And so that made me just stop and say, what is going on here? Why is this such a big issue? How could the issue of spiritual armor and spiritual warfare be more important than the doctrine of election and, and, and predestination and the refilling of the spirit? The spirit? And here's what I, I hear Paul saying to us. Let me tell you about the real battle. Wow. Paul, what are, what are you saying to us? You see, what I want you to know about the people at Ephesus was this, is that they were smart people. They knew doctrine. Paul had spent three years establishing the church at Ephesus. Paul was an incredibly brilliant man, and most of all of our doctrine comes from his writings and the New Testament. And so when we see Paul skip happily along, you have to ask yourself, did these people already know these great concepts, and he's just moving past that. Well, we see that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. We see that Jesus is addressing the church in Ephesus, and he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold stands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The, the church in Ephesus understands what right doctrine is and what it is not. They know what a false apostle is and that it's not. As a matter of fact, towards the bottom it says this, Yet you have this, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so Jesus is saying in this letter to the church of Ephesus that you cannot bear those who are evil, for their discernment was high. You test and you call out false teachers and false doctrine, and you hate the work of those who preach a false gospel which was the Nicolaitans that you could do whatever you want and still go to heaven he says that's not going to work but you Ephesus you know you know right doctrine you know true doctrine and so so since they know true doctrine now look at Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 through 31 and you tell me if this is a people who know doctrine well so much so that Paul doesn't have to really explain it because he understands they've grasped it already. He says in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Let me stop for a second. We're reading, we're reading a letter that Paul wrote to people who are not grappling with the most difficult doctrines in Scripture. These are not uneducated people. These are very well-educated people. They have seen the power of God do miraculous things. And here he is addressing them on a very primary way. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Let no corrupt... Talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good is building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Can I ask you, does this sound like Paul was talking to victorious people? <laughs> it just, 
He's saying, stop lying. You people of God, stop lying. Uh, Forgive people. Quit going to bed angry. These are things that I feel like I'm trying to teach someone new to the faith. Not someone who can actually uh, um, give a discourse on predestination and the spirit of adoption. That's, that doesn't make sense to me. He says, go get a job. Quit being lazy. These are simple things. He says, quit the gossip. Build people up instead of tearing them down. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit with bad attitudes such as bitterness, anger, and clamor, and malice. And so they're struggling with these issues And they even have the best leadership that church history has ever had. Because Timothy is their pastor. And then when Timothy steps down, the the apostle John becomes their pastor. They got got the mother Mary, the virgin. Well, she's not a virgin anymore, but she was a virgin. And she's in there over uh, women's ministry. You got Peter there. Peter and Apollo and Aquila and Priscilla. They're out there just killing the outreach game. You know what I mean? Like this, This is the best... This is the best church to be at. And Paul says, stop gossiping. Stop lying. Get a job. And so I'm thinking, Lord, how is it that they were so defeated in their personal lives that they couldn't do the basic things that you and I know to do, and we don't even need a deep theology to understand why we're doing those things? And so Paul, when he uses the word tolipos, finally, he's saying that in spite of the abundance of excellent ministry and the accessibility to the spiritual insight that they had and the people that were there, he says, you're not experiencing the overcoming abundant life that Jesus came to offer. They knew their word, but they were weak in their warfare. And I want to stop and ask you, you who know your word, where are you at in your warfare? Do you know how to war? Because they did not know how to war. And though they knew the word of God probably better than anyone in this room, they still yet were victim to the real war that waged. It's so easy for us to get our eyes set on things that we can control, and our brain naturally rejects the things that we can't control because we understand we can't control them, and so we don't want to acknowledge them. And every problem that we have is something that we either did or did not do. And we relegate every experience in life down to the natural, when probably we should, we should do right the opposite. And so Paul is saying, finally, let me talk to you about the thing that's most important. I know you know all those things. But let me talk to you about about why you do not know how to win in your own life and be victorious. I would challenge us, church, this morning, as I believe that that the word challenged them was simply this, is that we ought not let our hunger for the word make us hesitant for the battlefield. Don't let your hunger for the word. And I love the word. I love to dig into the word. But I know I have been guilty myself in neglecting the battlefield, the warfare that goes on. And so Paul is trying to bring us to an attention. If we're truly soldiers, we must not fight just in a classroom, but our job is to be out there on the battlefield. And so what are we fighting? Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood 
but against rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When Paul says the word against, now he could have been grammatically correct if he said against rulers, against powers, against uh, spiritual wickedness and cosmic powers. He could have said those things, but here's what he said. He said against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, against spiritual wickedness of evil and heavenly place, against those things. He calls it out time and time and time again. What is he trying to say? The word against here is unique. There's another time that the word against is in the Bible. This Greek word is called pros, and it's in John 1.1. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was pros, or against God. But it's not against like you and I think. It literally means the word was face-to-face with God. So let's put this in the context of what Paul's talking to us about. He says, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but no. You are face-to-face with something other than that. You are face-to-face with rulers and authorities and with, with cosmic powers and evil and wicked places. I think, I think for you to understand this, I just, I'm just going to illustrate this because I think you need to see something. So um, I want you two guys, Brian and Dom, you come, you come on. And uh, Zach, you come on. And uh, I'm trying to find somebody else. My, Jeff, come on. Come on. All right, we're about to get uncomfortable, fellas, okay? Because you heard what I said, right? It's face-to-face. And here's what I want you to know. Now, go ahead and just stack up for me. Just like this. We'll stack up right here so I can see. Just go one, two, three, four. All right? Just like a line. Like you're coming towards me. One, two, three, four. Jeff, you come right here. Now, if he said against... Now, y'all don't mind if I just, I'm just going to call you a different name today, right? Uh, against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and evil in wicked places. He didn't say against those, he didn't say against and call those names. No, here's what he did. He said against, 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 and against. And he said, you were face to face. And can I tell you, have you ever felt this way before? Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? And I somehow feel that it may be even closer in reality than what we see right now. Yeah, thank God. Thanks, guys. And so we're in that place where we're face to face. And the closer that the enemy comes to us, he blinds us from any hope or any true understanding about what's happening because that's what he wants us to do. He wants you to focus on the things that, you, that he does not want you to see. And so everywhere you turn, against, 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 against. Paul said, I'm pressed on every side. Every side. How many times have you said, I don't know why I feel this way. I don't know why I feel this way. But I feel like I can't turn left or right or go backwards or forwards. I feel like something is suffocating me. Something is pressing on me. And it would be so nice for us just to say that it was the stress and anxiety of this world. But if you are a born-again Christian called by the name of Christ, you should know there's a bullseye on your face.
It's not coincidental. It's not just happenstance. You are not liked. And so he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And as we see this, we, we have to understand is, is that flesh and blood, number one, when you wrestle against flesh and blood, you're already powerless. You don't have anything. Let me just remind you of what you are considering the flesh and blood. Romans 6, 5 through 6 says this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you and I are dead. Have you ever fought with a dead person? You, you ever got down with a, dug him about the grave and break his knuckles? What did he say to you? Was he offended? Was he mad? Did he call his family and say, you know what so-and-so did to me? Did he call his employer back and say, you'll never treat me? What did a dead person do? Nothing. He's dead. And Paul is telling us, is the enemy knows where he wants you to fight. And that's why he's after your flesh. Because he knows if I can get you to fight where you have no strength. Dead folks don't have strength. They're done. Matter of fact, dead people don't even have the ability to coordinate themselves or unify themselves. Because when you're dead, you're disconnected and all the strength and life and breath is left in you. And so that's what the enemy knows about you and me. If I can get you, if I can offend you and pull you into your flesh, because you guys know that's how you get us into our flesh, right? Offend us, and we are in our flesh. The emotion takes over. The logic gets kicked out the window, right? And that's where he wants us to be. He says, this is not where you need to be. Paul reminds us differently. He says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You are not without weaponry. It's just that your weapons in the flesh, your knowledge, your planning, your schemes, your ability, your talents, your resources, your finances, all those things mean nothing. And let me just remind you that in case that you do win a battle in the flesh, that whatever strength it took to win that battle will be the same strength it takes to keep that battle. We don't got it. You may muster enough of it up, but you can't keep it up. And even if you could... It would be just enough for yourself, but probably not for the weaker things in your life that you care most about. And so Paul is reminding us that whatever strength we have is found in him. Whatever power we have, whatever authority we have, like we talked about last week, it is finished. And that authority is found in Christ and his nature. So what are we up against? I want to talk to you about four things this morning. What are we up against? The first thing is we're up against rulers. That is archos. The word simply means ancient or beginning. 
When you find it translated in other parts of Scripture, it talks about beginning or ancient of ancients. These are the classifications of spirits that came down from the beginning, and they come down with the power that they had in the very beginning. They, are, they don't have delegated power. They have the highest form of power. We, they're also ruling spirits. We see these same spirits in Daniel when it says that Daniel was praying, and as he was praying, an angel or a message was coming to him, but something withheld him for 21 days, Daniel chapter 10. And he says, as I was trying to get to you, he goes, the prince of Persia withheld me 21 days, but Michael, the archangel, came and helped me to get here. And then after I've given this message to you, now i got to go back, and as I do, it says the prince of Greece is now going to come. But don't worry about me, Daniel, because Michael is with me. What in the world is going on? Daniel said, I was just trying to understand what that dream was about, you know? Y'all up there warning the heavenlies, yes. Just for understanding. Just for understanding. Not healing. Not financial provision. Not from relief from a spiritual attack. Just, just for understanding. 21 days for understanding. These spirits are territorial. And, and I wonder, because I'm pretty sure that as I see in Scripture, what I, what I realize probably too is, is that, that you cannot defeat these spirits in the flesh. That's why we can probably sign all the executive documents we want here in America to try to change the powers of hand. But there are spirits that are still warring. You cannot solve spiritual problems with natural remedies. You cannot go over there and liberate Israel with, with bullets and weapons and mass destruction. It's a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue. They have always be fi been fighting. They will always continue to fight. When you see generational conflicts, you know it's not a matter of disagreement. This is a, a spirit who has been assigned to a territory to create chaos and destruction. And there's been a spirit assigned to you and your family. That's the reason why you're struggling with alcohol. That's why you're, you're struggling with same sex or you're struggling with other things in your life. It's been attacked to you, assigned to you, and you got to break free of it because it's the real thing that's happening it's not you've been tempted yes they use the temptation desires but that thing has been on you for a reason what is it in your name and your bloodline that God is trying to do and the enemy sees that Jesus said Peter Satan has asked for you why isn't it funny that sometimes Satan sees more in us than we do in ourselves he says, but don't worry. I pray that your flesh, your faith may not fail, though your flesh might fail. And I'd say we, we don't pay attention to the things of the supernatural enough. We just go right past them. The second thing was authorities. They, they were just those who received power to operate on regions. It was just a delegated thing. They can do what they want so long as it's up within the nature and character of Satan. That's a bit scary. The third thing is, is, is incredibly important. Against cosmic powers, there is no other, this term that Paul crafted is, is, is a term of uniqueness. Cosmocrateros is not something you find anywhere in Scripture, and it is a, a rare word you find even in Greek literature. But here's what it simply means. It means raw power that has been arranged and set into order. 
raw power that has been brought and arranged and set into order. And what we see is simply this. It's a military term, and it's in a military context. And what, what, what Paul is trying to get us to understand is that when we see raw power organized and put into ranks and file, do you know that, that Lucifer came down from heaven? He knows what hierarchy is. He knows what order is. He knows what structure is. And he can demand everything from his legions of demons if he wants because he's the master in chief. And so they have to respond to him with commitment, with unity, with discipline. And that's why they're so powerful. And as I begin to understand that and realize what that is, I ask the Lord, Lord, why are they so powerful against the church? We got more authority than they do. We got more power than they do. I tell you what we lack. We lack cosmocrateros, the ability to be unified, organized, disciplined and committed not just to our own personal devotions and lives but even to the church itself we're talking about an army against an army and they completely do whatever their master tells them without any hesitation and Cosmo Quateros is simply this is saying there's all this raw power it's like the 300 the Spartans, right? They were all powerful men, but when you put them into a unit, they were unstoppable. And this is where the church falters at because we have these denominations and these other understandings and we allow the smallest offenses to create division. And that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. Do you know that America, back in the Cold War, mastered the art of conflict and conquer? through executing the same political agendas as communism did, to, to beat against communism. Do you know what they did? They went into 30 different countries. You can look this up in history. 30 different countries. What they did was they found groups of people that had conflict, different identities in conflict. They allowed them to inflame those conflicts against each other. And then when these groups of people, then they began to uh, um, disagree with each other, then they could come right in and establish an agenda. And the, and the politics of the day could, could roll right over all of these groups of people because they were no longer unified anymore. And so they did this 30 different times, and the Soviet Union did the same thing. And so it was a chess game. It's a chess game. But the agenda was always the same. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. If I can get you to be mad about this and you'd be mad about this and you'd be mad about this and you'd be mad about this, we're doing it here in America right now, right? You got a right, you got a right, you got a right, you got a right. Now you're offended, now you're offended, now you're offended. And when the steamroller comes, we're all, no, I'm not going to work with them. I'm not going to be with them. And we all just get smooth right over. These are not man-made ideas. This is what he's been doing for the long shot. Cosmo Quateros, he is well organized. Unity is necessary to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. It was in one accord. They were like-minded. And the opposite of unity is strife. And do you know what strife does? Paul says, but our brothers could not address you as spiritual people. Wow. As people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food. You were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are all still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? 
We're just primed. Because he understands that we have no power when we wrestle against flesh and blood. I hope you hear me this morning. We need to be a unified church. I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about the church, the capital C at large. I'm talking about Kingdom North and Kingdom South and Kingdom East and Kingdom West. I'm not talking about these names and these different denominations. I'm talking about one kingdom building the kingdom of God. Because as long as we are different churches and different identities and different distinctions, it'll always be Harrison, the place of, of darkness and domain. It'll never be, it'll never be what God desires Harrison to be. Because we're so wrapped up in our rights that we died to Christ in. I pray God deliver us from our own selves. The last one is simply this. Against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The Greek word is poneros. It simply means the wicked, malevolent, vile, bad, vicious, impious, or malignant. These are the spiritual reflections that the enemy sends out to accomplish his will. His plan simply is to afflict, afflict humanity and all manner of bad, vile, evil, um, vicious men or spirits against men. So, Pastor, what is the response and how do we exercise the victory of the cross? That's where we're at. I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 6.10 says this. Finally, right, we're there. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The word strong simply means this. It's in dynamo. It is the same word we find in Greek literature that simply says this, is that when, when Zeus was infused with power from the gods of Kronos and when, when Hercules became a, a, not just a mere man, but he became a godlike man, he was in dynamo. The word was not used in any other place. Which is funny because I find us being, seeing this in scripture and we are not entertaining Greek mythology. We know those things are lies. We don't believe that God has transformed us into some, some God-like thing. We don't have to think that way at all. We have the very power of God in our life. We have very God in us. I don't have to be something other than I'm not. God has given me everything that I am and that I need to be by the gift of his son who he has placed me in. I have a power way beyond my ability. And he is saying, finally, be in dynamo. Be infused. Be transformed in something that is far beyond your capacity. In you, you have the powerful force of that of a, tor a divine tornado. A divine earthquake that when it happens, power comes upon you in a way you are not used to. You don't walk in. And he says, be strong in this. And the last part of this is simply this. He says, be strong. Where, where to be strong? Be strong where? In the Lord. There's only one place to get that. But then he says this last little piece. And in the strength of his might. Wow. The strength of his might. Back up earlier in the chapter, we read Paul talking about the strength of his might. And when he says the strength of his might, he is talking in the context and basically is saying, it was this strength that the Holy Spirit resurrected our Savior. That the power it took to overcome death in the body of Christ 
to pull him out of the fangs of death and command every part of his body, every part of his cell and his lungs to bring back life again. That same power that caused the Romans to fall down on their face in sheer uh, terror and fear. The same power that rolled a stone back away that it took groups of men to put there in the first place. That's the same power that's in you. And he says, be strong in that. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's a demonstrative strength. We stand before the enemy. It's not us. We don't carry anything. But there is a power so great in you. So powerful in you. And if we don't yield ourselves and humility and submit ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit, you will always live a non-victorious life. You will always struggle with that generational curse in your life. You will always struggle with those things until you submit your life unto the power of the cross and the resurrection and the grave. There is no freedom for you. And we have to walk in that power daily because you can be freed from even a generational curse but it will come back to find to see if it can submit to you again or make you submit to it again. You can be freed from its consequence and its power and its effects, but it still will come to oppress you to see if it can put its hooks right back into you. You need a, you need a power that's not your own. Paul says we, we have that power. Just stand with me this morning. I want to ask you, Who needs that power today? Who needs that power today? I don't want to be a victim just because I don't want to submit. I don't want to be a victim because it makes my Lord look weak. It robs him of the glory that he has an opportunity to manifest in my life. And so I submit to him that he might be powerful in my life. That when he looks down upon Scott Brandon, that he can get all the glory that he can bleed out of this turnip. I want the full power of God. If that's what you want, will you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, you see us, God, right now where we're at. You know, God, the circumstances and the obstacles in front of us, God. We will not be defeated, God. We will not cower. We will not be afraid to the enemy, God, and his legions of demons and spirits. And though we may not see them or even comprehend their power, we know, God, that no matter what power they have, God, it is not greater than the power who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And I pray, God, right now, and before we go home, before we face the problems that we faced in life. Oh, Lord, fill us. Fill us with the Holy Spirit power like we've never known before, God. A fresh, a new one, God. A new, a new one. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. One last thing before you go. I looked up the Columbia River. It's a little stream. It's like a little creek like we got around here. It's about this big. It's so cute. <laughs> Splash it in, you know, and get your ankles wet and you know, all those things. But as you go down the river, it gets pretty big. And as you get all the way down it, 
you realize why it powers one-third of the hydroelectricity in America. It is, math, it is a force of nature. And the question I have is, is, how does it turn from such a cute little thing to such a powerful thing? And you know the answer like I know the answer. It's just tributaries. Tributaries, right? It's, it's this being added to it and that being added to it. Can I tell you, I pray you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. But even if you have, you need to add one more tributary to your life. One more filling to your life. One more refreshing to your life. Because if you and I are going to move in power, currents so great that earth and soil and rock can't disturb us, then we got to make sure that we're constantly being filled day by day. It says in Acts that in this chapter and that chapter and that chapter and that chapter, they were constantly being refilled. And if you and I are going to take on the things that the Lord has put before us, we need a constant filling. Amen? I'm done. Your ham's almost done in the oven. Go home. Be blessed. We love you. We'll see you Wednesday.